Hello everyone and welcome to Season 2 of Ignite the Flame Audio. If you're just joining us and you haven't already listened to Season 1, I would encourage you to go on back and listen to the whole of Season 1. Else this story that we're going to go through toward the end is not really going to make much sense because it's a follow-on. The rest of the book can be treated like a standalone novel, but more toward the end, it sort of plays off the first one. So just to avoid confusion, I would advise you to go on back and have a listen to season one. If you already have, then by this point, you've got some knowledge of how an episode is structured. For those of you who are just joining us, basically what we do is we read a chapter to you. The characters are voiced, and then we have what's called the origin of ideas section, which is where we take the inspirations that inspired characters and other events within the chapter, and we break them down for you. Then we follow that with a section known as Tips of the Trade, which gives those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for a little bit extra, we give you the tips that we've come up with during our three years as an author just to give you that little boost. So without any further ado, let's go on and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow Chapter 1 In the beginning Jack Oliver Lantern, for crimes against your fellow man, I have no choice but to sentence you to hang by the neck until you are dead. May God have mercy on your soul, were the last words I would hear from the judge of my worldly flesh, for committing no more than theft from something which he had no idea even existed. Conviction should have found me for my earlier experiments, which were crimes, not just against my fellow man, but in addition against natural law. All I knew was I was sentenced to death for an unjust cause, and a law which I once helped had condemned me for having a mind which, on occasion, looked for deeper answers. A curse to many, and it must be silenced in this world we have constructed. But somehow, it felt as though my path would not end here at the end of my tether, but many years to come. The noose so wiry in appearance, and stagnant, with a smell of iron and fluids, staining not only its reputation, wrapped around my neck as though a medal, achieved for committing a heinous act. Alas, pride came before the fall. That part is vague in memory, but what came after has remained and shall do until my mind is far gone. The executioner stands to my left, with a dark mask concealing his grief, cold, stricken face from his peers, lest he show inclinations toward remorse for the lives he claimed, watching several tens of men falling to the pits of despair on a daily basis, playing the part of he that shall not be named, wondering when his time would come, should this corrupt system have no need for him. He stares into my eyes, bruised and beaten from officers I once regarded as friends, and I concede the pity in his, bowing my head in acceptance from one falsely appointed wretch to another. The bag, resembling that of a scarecrow, with stitched eyes and mouth cavity, has strange structures resembling circles around the mouth parts, 
the eyes having a clear haze when compared to the remainder, as if wishing me to see everything before flames engulf my soul and caress my flesh with torturous intent. I wear this symbol and watch in horror as many children bear witness to this act, their faces lit with opportunity and fear of what they are about to see. As a constant reminder of those who stand against a corrupt system or empire, but upon witnessing them in their purity, tainted by older generations' acceptance, I decided there and then to resist. No matter what my fate, I will stand alone against tyranny in the hopes to rally those free of mind to my cause, despite the briefness. I may fall, but through me, many shall rise. Reminiscent of ages past, people in history rushed to mind. Socrates, Copernicus, and Galileo, to name but a few. Falsely convicted, put to death for knowing a truth, wished to be kept from a denying public, accordingly to maintain social control and political power. As though sparked with lightning, my entire body jolts, and my eyes feel as though they are retreating into my skull, with another's replacing them. I begin to see the effects of what I can only describe as a hallucinogenic, with gaseous forms floating around the room as specters and ghosts of the fallen, screaming, calling, and reaching out to me. Their torment gathers beneath me with outstretched arms, creeping through the slats in the wooden floor and grasping hold of my feet. Their touch, so strong and with such purpose, but not to pull me down, to hold me up. I see the wrongs of people's past, overwhelmed by the sheer number of people present. Kleptomania, debauchery, murder, abuse, prostitution, racism, assault, and other horrific atrocities from those condemning me to death. Not one of them looking upon themselves and evaluating their right to judge one which they had not ever met before. This was a people I came to serve, but no more. How could I? So then, I make the decision to serve one who will get me out of this situation. And as the executioner reaches for the trapdoor mechanism, I grab hold of the cross which has been close to me for many years and utter my last words. God, may you have mercy upon my soul. No sooner than the lever is pulled than do I feel a weightlessness of conscience as my body succumbs to gravity. The noose tightens around my neck, and as I fall, my life replays before my eyes with highlighted moments leading from poverty into ambition, from ignorance into revelation. And in that moment, the rope is loosened. Cut from its source by a masked assailant, gas spreads through the crowd, scattering them to the four winds and the distinct aroma of mustard in my nasal cavities. I cough and reach in disbelief, feeling the sensation of tingling in my skin and the burning of my throat, accompanied by the old lacerations from an outer prison, reopening and beginning to weep. With bloodstains blinding my every blink, there is a sharp incision into my neck, giving an intense pain for only a few moments, leading to complete darkness and paralysis. I awaken unto a table, resembling that found in a morgue, with the coroner looking over me, astonished by my sudden recovery after declaring my death, a table of ice, shelves lined with bottled medicine and a cold embrace to the room, stare from its white walls and floor with dark oak furniture 
as the only homely touch. To my shock and dismay, my torso had been filled with puncture wounds and small vivisections in an effort to resuscitate life but to no avail. Only after this maiming did I finally awaken to see not a body, but a series of dissections stitched back together. From then on, I came to know myself not only as Jack Oliver Lantern, but as people who feared me would come to know me. Scarcrow. Ah, you're awake. I must say it is a miracle that you are even breathing. This wound in your neck was delivered with some force and nearly proved fatal. The sedative was quite the mix of potent toxins, preventing ordinary bodily functions. Enough for you to be declared dead and transferred here. Because I struggled to revive you, I was given strict instructions to observe all aspects of your anatomy in case you were deceased. Those who saved you believe you are quite the find, else they wouldn't have gone to such effort. I'm glad I could be of such assistance to these martyrs of secrecy and mutilation. Oh no, you can't be mad at them. They did all they could to save you. This is all my work. All your work? Even those? I said, pointing toward pumpkins of glass filling with liquid, bubbling away as the Bunsen burners heated them to boiling point. Oh no, that is your work. They said you would know what to do when the time came, and that I would be the one to guide you there. A mentor of sorts. Of sorts. You see... You will obtain true justice through me, in the form of vengeance, and if I can guide you to use these chemicals to obtain the truth, then it will be a pleasure. Oh, they instructed me to give you this as well. They said you were already introduced, and to think of it as the darker side of ambition. Darker side? And before I can refuse, he places the mask over my head again, covering my jet black hair and pronging my eyes with fringe, whilst compacting it toward my ears and neck area. I feel heightened in sense and mind, as if found by strength and a new intensity, like I had never before experienced. I struggle to comprehend my condition, and the more I concentrate, the further it retreats into the recesses of my mind. Breaking the belts which once secured my body, I snap and contort my limbs in order to release my shackles, although now I am well aware they have become interior due to an unseen master's design. I thought I was in command, but this specter soon proves me wrong. Reaching for the pumpkin-shaped orange-stained glass globes, the distinct smell of chlorine and phosgene reveal phantasms in my vision, and despite their concentration, prove to be a stimulant rather than a horrific form of gaseous torture. Alas, the same cannot be said for the good doctor, as I laugh hysterically and throw a multitude of globes toward wall and ground alike, their shells cracking and exploding into a flurry of shattered reflection, releasing a mist upon the poor souls within. The vapor slithers up the doctor's legs and wraps around him in coils, entwining his lungs with water and blood from the war which now occurred within him. He rips his interior to shards, and blood pours from his eyes, only for him to cry out, You are free! And then, collapse before me. I am surrounded by equations of concentration and formulae for weapons of malicious intent. 
involving surgical apparatus and pressurized gas containers, with small interjections of psilocybin within a methanol body, water added to the mix and only activated by that exhaled from a cigarette, would make a vile combination which would render victims paranoid, delusional schizophrenics in the best cases. How could such a weapon, such an idea, be conceived? Using chemicals to destroy your fellow man. The feeling of guilt is overpowering, and yet I am overwhelmed by intrigue, as this new inhabitant of my mind wishes to witness this horrific spectacle to its last. I begin to shed tears of blood and experience a loss of vision, with the smell of charcoal in my nose, perhaps lining the mask which entraps my grotesque face. Now, not simply on the outside. The burning crawls around my body, tangling around me as a wire, with sharp barbs present, stinging in areas and scarring in others. I attempt to remove the mask, but only allow the mist access, and it begins to devour my lower jaw, peeling the skin from bone, muscle becoming visible and lips ceasing to exist. Again, stupidity has led to loss, and it is all my fault this time. I thought punishment was mine, but this new accomplice wishes for differences in me, an intrigue far surpassing the constraints of natural law, as in to understand what makes us mortals writhe in pain, enough to drive one to confess its deepest and darkest secrets. The mask reclaims its strangling grip, and my hands fall to my side, as does the rest of me unto my knees, bowing my head as though to accept its reign from my shoulders. God forgive me are the only words I can muster from my torn mouthparts. The severity of pain is almost enough to send me into a dream state. But no, not this time. I am to remain awake for this memory to scar me for the rest of time itself. The mist lifts, and the mask slackens, as though to squeeze what little humanity I still possess, and leave me with the consequences. Removing the mask, all I can do is check the doctor's pulse and scream in anger at the ground, knowing I had accomplished that which never should be accomplished. In the beginning, God created life, and I had taken it. I arise from my fallen pose, and am greeted by a group of masked figures, all looking similar with slight differences, much like that of humankind. They bear a mark similar to the doctor's tattoo, so unfamiliar and yet noticeable. Taking my underarms as wings of a fallen angel, they drag me into a catacomb filled with water and the stench of rotting waste, embracing my senses like an order of oriental dishes. They reveal their intentions to me as I drift in and out of consciousness. I catch parts of conversation in a multitude of voices. A choir of deception. He is the one. Master will be pleased. And all my being cries out, My soul searches beyond the ether. For, for I still believe he is delusional. Side effects from the gases, I assure you. They continue to whisper. All I know is that only faith could redeem me from this state I had accepted, without due thought or questioning, like many indoctrinated before me. Who could save such a wretch as me? A murderer. A thief. A deranged scientist with a vivid imagination. My mind could only struggle to bring one forth. But was I worthy of his attention? When you are ready to accept who you are, 
then we will train you with all we know and more. We will release your true potential and help you to become what is planned for you. You are so important in our grand design and you will be instrumental in the demise of this empire and many like it. But for now, we will let fate decide and should our paths meet again, it will truly be destiny. They strike me to the back of the skull and throw my lifeless corpse into the Thames, believing me to the elements and animals alike, welcoming death and disease with every breath I take, engulfing sewer-filled water and choking on the air just as much. My lungs now lined with decay. I have become the embodiment of plague, with only the possibility of some poor soul retrieving my body from a watery grave to look forward to. As moments pass and light and darkness laps across my face, I turn in the raging waters, changing state from liquid to gas, the change in pressure and intensity so apparent it remains in my innermost memory and constitutes fear within my soul. However, the will to live surpasses all understanding, and I begin to make my way toward the shore as the only source of life left to me. A child calls out and draws attention to my floating carcass with a vicar in tow, scouring the beach for new bodies to line the morgues and bring the dead to rest. They take me by the arms and drag me up the embankment, trailing my legs behind until they leave the cold embrace of the Thames' toxic waters. I cough and splutter in vomiting up the disgust which fills my innards with both physical and spiritual upheaval. Darkness befalls me once more, and all I hear is, What is it that you fear? To defeat fear, you must become fear and bask in its radiance. I awaken once again and find the young lad and vicar praying over me, as though to have faith enough to bring about resurrection. As I sit up straight, I remark, Only one had the power, father, and you know him better than I. Indeed, sir. I must ask, did the waters do that to you? No, father. This was the work of imprisonment. But you know all too well of that. I'm sure you have witnessed many disfigured remnants on the embankment before me. I sure have, sir. But surely someone would have aided you in such a moment? My mind casts back, and I witness a memory within a memory. Alone I stand in a corridor. Two to my right, one behind, and one in front. The odds are against me, as they always were. And as they set upon me, thrashing and beating me to a bloody pulp, the constables stand and stare, too afraid and too stupid to act accordingly. As the blood pours and I lose feeling in my arms and legs, I cry out in a vague whisper, God, help me! And afterwards, they stop and run. To where? I still don't know. Almost as if they were never there at all. As my mind drifts back, I answer the Father. Well, all I can say is your prayers were answered, Father. As this wretch can only assign my being here to a guardian angel. Ah, you have faith, at least, which is a good sign. Now, do you know who did this to you? Yes, Father. But I do not seek revenge. But redemption, for I have claimed lives not in the name of our Lord, but in death's own curiosity. Any soul can be redeemed, sir. Granted, it will take time, but as long as you are willing to try, 
I am willing to come alongside. I am Father Thomas Drake, and this is young Master Ichabod Crane. A pleasure to meet you, young Master Crane. I can tell your future will be very bright indeed. Well, sir, I have grand ambitions to become a detective in the hands of Scotland Yard, and possibly make a career in it some day, like the great inspector of London, Isaac... That's enough, Ichabod. Apologies, sir. Little Ichabod here has an active imagination, and believes all is possible when we clearly know better. Father, do not dampen his ambitions. After all, is it not the work of the Church to inspire the best in mankind? I simply suggest the dead should not be his first dream. Perhaps a less dangerous line of work. All life has a dangerous aspect. Even yours, Father. But I am willing to cooperate, if you are willing to give my soul a chance. Many years passed after that. Much occurred, but that is a story which will reveal itself in time. For now, all I can do is open my eyes, laying this memory to rest once more. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. For those of you just joining us, this is the section where we discuss the inspirations that have come forth in the chapter that's just been read to you, and how they came to be, how they led to the chapter itself. So the first point is that Scarecrow as a character is based off of Scarecrow from the DC Comics for Batman. Uh, For anyone who knows, Scarecrow is one of the main antagonists for Batman, uh, and he just happens to be our favourite, and... While we were sort of watching Batman Begins, it just sort of dawned on us that, you know, what if we had sort of like, because obviously there was a spin-off for the DC Comics of, of Batman being a detective himself, we thought, why not make a detective that has a Scarecrow type vibe, which is where the idea for Scarecrow first came from. And there's little references to Scarecrow, even through the first chapter when there's mention to glass orbs that are orange stained, and they look like pumpkins. These are a direct reference to the, the fear gas bombs that were used by Scarecrow in those comics. The second point is the naming of the character. The name for the character is Jack Oliver Lantern, which can be described as Jack O'Lantern, which is sort of like a, a funny play on, on the name. And usually a Jack O'Lantern is a hollowed out pumpkin so again it's another reference to the scarecrow uh normally a candle's put inside to sort of remind you of halloween that sort of type vibe Uh, but it's basically another throwback to the scarecrow character so everything going into this first chapter is very much setting the scene for the character being a representation of the character of scarecrow from batman the third point is a mention to ichabod crane now anyone who recalls this name you'll recognize it from the story of sleepy hollow now this obviously tells of the story of the headless horseman from within the americas there's a a place called sleepy hollow Uh, you'll also recognize it from assassin's creed rogue Uh, you actually get to go to sleepy hollow and fight the headless horseman that's always a fun easter egg for you to find Uh, and you have to shoot the pumpkin off the top of the gravestone in order to kill him that's um quite an interesting easter egg but Ichabod Crane is the main protagonist of that story. Um, and it's sort of like 
almost like a link between those two stories where Scarcrow or Jack Oliver Lantern then has met Ichabod Crane before he journeyed out to Sleepy Hollow and met the Headless Horseman. So it's almost like a part of Ichabod's origin story, so to speak, in a way to tie those two books together. The fourth point is that as Jack is being dragged through the catacombs by this legion of masked figures, he utters words, My soul searches beyond the ether, for I still believe. Now, this is a direct reference, as anyone who knows, we're always referencing music we listen to. This is a reference to a song called Embrace the Journey by Killswitch Engage, and it's from their album Incarnate. It's their second to most recent album. It's one of my favourite tracks, and there's a part at the end of that song where the guitarist, Adam, he basically just starts reaming off that line. He, he just starts singing, My soul searches beyond the ether, for I still believe. And obviously it made its way into the dialogue of Jack while he was being dragged through those catacombs. The final point is another reference, but this time to a film. Uh, for those of you who've seen Babe, uh, it's a story about a pig who basically gets put on a farm and he ends up becoming uh, trained like a sheepdog. For any of you who remember that as a childhood classic, I remember it as a, as a childhood classic. There's a moment in there where one of the collies, Rex, uh, he's got trouble hearing and you find out the backstory behind him told from the perspective of his, his partner, the other collie. And she informs Babe the reason that he's deaf is because um, he was trying to save a flock of sheep during a rainstorm. And one of the phrases that she uses is too afraid and too stupid. Now, this is brought up when Jack recalls his recollection of being set upon in the jail by the criminals and the police are too afraid and too stupid to move because they didn't know how to handle the situation. It's exactly the same sort of phrase that was used in the movie of Babe and obviously found its way into our story accordingly. So that about sums it up for this section. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. This is the section where we basically discuss, as it says, tips for aspiring authors, for those of you aspiring to be authors yourselves, or those of you who are already authors that just want that little bit extra. This is basically just helpful hints to help you out along your journey. So I thought this episode we would continue with the theme of characters. Uh, we briefly described this uh, in the first season, if you want to go back to the first season and catch episode five. We go into characters, like how to describe characters, how to base them off of real people, or how to describe them, uh, their mannerisms, even down to their you know physical features, their emotional responses, all these different sorts of things. So I just thought in this episode, we'll sort of continue that, but not so much on focusing on how to create a character, but how to develop a character within your actual story. So the first point we're going to go into is character relationships, because a lot of the things that we have struggled with as we've sort of gone through crafting a story is how the characters actually relate to the story itself. You know, are they just a passing character? Are they an antagonist, a protagonist? You know, so the protagonist is obviously the main sort of character for the story, uh, sort of the, the good guy, if you will. And the antagonist is like the enemy or, or the, the ultimate supervillain, so to speak. And just having an idea of what you want those characters to be doing within the story just helps the story to flow like better. 
what you can start to look at once you've created your characters is how they're going to relate to each other. So do you have, you know, does your story revolve around two central characters? Is it a master slash protege type relationship? Is it they're sort of brothers in arms? Do they belong to the same job? You know, do they have the same interests? Are they friends? Are they related? Are they family members, lovers, perhaps? This kind of thing is is what you want to basically start thinking about once you've created your character. You actually start thinking about how they relate to each other, how they relate to the other characters, respectively. With character relationships, obviously, their dialogue is going to depend on how close-knit those characters are. So, for example, if you've literally just met that character, like if you have a character that is just meeting, say, like they're a suspect in a detective novel, they're going to be quite standoffish at first, you know, whereas if you have a relationship where the characters are closer together, you might have things like inside jokes, you might have ways in which their dialogue relates to each other. So it sort of has a knock-on effect, if you will, establishing the character relationship and then how that will then play out on dialogue and dialect. Now, we'll probably cover dialogue and dialect in a later episode, but just to sort of give you that sort of first idea into how the relationships then tie in with the rest of the book. It's just something to think about at this moment. Another point is that the storyteller can be seen as a character themselves. So what we tend to do is write the book from first person. So we actually put ourselves into the mindset of the character because it helps us sort of flesh out the character. Because obviously what we're dealing with at that time will then be brought forth in that character. It'll be much easier to sort of feel what the character feels. It'd be much easier to put your passion across, uh, put your feelings across. Uh, it's one of the reasons you'll notice as we go through this story, you'll notice that our main protagonist, Jack, he is very much more of a sinister character. He's much more of an angry character, which we'll obviously discuss more in detail the further we go in. But it's basically a direct reflection. It's easier to get into those emotions when you're telling it from first-person perspective. But sometimes you can have third-person where you tell the story and the author seems completely absent. But there are some novels, we've even tried it ourselves in um, a later novel known as What's Down There, where the author actually becomes a pivotal character halfway through the story. So it sort of changes from third person almost to first person. The storyteller, as in yourself, the author, you can also portray yourself as a character. You can describe how you feel about the story that you're telling, how you feel about each individual character. You can use that to build your story into a much more compelling novel. And the final point is that a place can be treated like a character. Now, this isn't necessarily represented in most genres, but especially in thriller, particularly horror. A place can be treated like a character. So, for example, a haunted house is the first thing that pops into your head when you think, okay, horror novel where a place is described almost, it, it has like a tangible feel to it. It's almost like this house has a personality. It has a feeling about it. You know, it doesn't want you there sort of thing. Um, so that's an instant where you can actually have a place feeling like a character. Obviously, you can pretty much do that with most areas, but the majority of time it's to sort of emphasize the point that this place almost has a mind of its own. So in the sense of a haunted house, like I said, it either wants to keep you in or it wants to keep you out. That sort of mentality can almost be made to feel like a character. There's not very many areas that want to do that to you. But if you can figure out a way in which to use a place to almost have a sense of character, then by all means, go for it. 
You know, I mean, sometimes uh, romance novels will use it where you have a place like Vienna, where it has almost like a romantic characteristic about it. But it's more of a characteristic rather than being an actual character itself. But it's just something to bear in mind, the fact that when we think of characters, we automatically assume that that means the people in the book. But it's not necessarily. And it can even go to the point in romance where you can look at the relationship between two characters as a character itself. What I mean by that is... As a character goes through a story, if you want your story to be relatively decent, you want your character to evolve throughout that story. So if we take a story like, for instance, Stephen King's It, you take the kids from that story. They start off where they're pretty much powerless to fight against Pennywise. And then by the end of the story, they evolve into being the actual group that then defeats Pennywise in the end. So what we have is this evolution between the characters and obviously... From the beginning of the story to the end of the story, there's a direct evolution within their character. So they end up finding the strength. The same can be said of the relationship within a romance novel. You have two characters that start off, maybe they don't know each other very well. Then their relationship changes. They become, you know, more akin to each other. They become more friendly toward each other. And then it develops into obviously uh, a romantic connection. Then it obviously becomes more intimate and so on and so on until it basically evolves throughout the story so in that sort of sense you can even look at the relationships between characters as a character itself and you can develop and evolve those relationships like characters throughout your story okay so that about wraps it up for this section and that's the end of episode one of season two once again guys thank you for tuning in thank you for making us a part of your day really means the world to us that you would actually take the time out of your otherwise busy day to make us a part of it Of course, as always, we'll endeavour to include any of the links below that have been mentioned so that you have access to any and all helpful videos, websites, etc. that have been mentioned during this episode. Now we're just going to take some time, guys, to um, basically promote a particular project that's captured our interest. For the first season, you'll remember that we promoted another podcast, Genuine Chit Chat, hosted by a friend of ours, Mike Burton. I'd still recommend you head on over there. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, I'm sure you'll enjoy that one. But for this season, for season two, I'm going to be focusing on Top Dog Studios. It's a painting company, particularly sign painting, set up by a very good friend of mine, Callum Young. We go way back, all the way through school and college. And I've had the pleasure of, of working alongside of Callum and seeing just how much of a talented artist he is. And to see him now have... Top Dog Studios is actually really incredible to see him come this far. It basically mixes old and new. So you have sign paintings rather than printed plastics. Basically, the the website boasts that they will paint on any surface. And it's all hand-painted rather than done by a machine. So it still homes that craft that's been mastered over the past couple hundred years that have always been used for advertisement before the digital world sort of came in and took over things. So if you really want handcrafted talent, then this is definitely the place to go. To give you a feel, Top Dog Studios have had successful clients already with the likes of Lundstag, Lidl, Rev de Cuba, Room 2, Metrics. I've seen that design personally myself. Absolutely fantastic. River Island, Smugglers, just to name a few. So it's in high demand. Handcrafted signage painting, the likes of which Top Dog Studios provide, are in great demand. 
It's creative design. And if you head on over to the website, that's www.topdogstudios, that's all lowercase letters, .co.uk. It provides you with a more detailed description of what they're all about, what Callum's all about. It allows you to purchase prints of already completed works, but it also allows you, if you're interested in having signage for your brand, for your business, your corporation, it allows you a part on the page to fill in your name, your email address, your phone number, to tell Top Dog Studios a little bit about the project. And there's also a section for your budget and the time scale. So this is a completely professional way of having your brand properly represented in a truly handcrafted fashion and by a very talented artist who's also a really genuinely nice dude. So if that's something that you would be interested in or if you know someone who's interested in promoting their brand or promoting their business and they have a taste for handcrafted design, be sure to head on over to that website. Once again, it's www.topdogstudios, all lowercase letters, .co.uk and be sure to show Callum some love. I'm sure he'd appreciate it. So once again, guys, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.